Thank you, Lord, for your blessing on the word of God tonight. Lord, we're not approaching any book, but we're approaching the sacred text, Lord, the sacred word, the God-breathed word. And we pray that tonight, Lord, as we get into the book of Philippians, that what you moved on the Apostle Paul to write will bless us, help us, strengthen us, undergird us, equip us, change us, rearrange us, renovate us, renew our minds. And we just thank you for it, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus. Lord, open our understanding. Make this real to us. Bring it home. May the Holy Spirit, the great teacher of the church, the illuminator of the church, teach us tonight, Lord. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, I open my heart to the word of God. Speak to me tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them it's going to be good. If somebody's next to you, if not, don't worry. Those of you watching by streaming, we welcome you. It's so good to have you with us. Chances are you might would have been here, but not for the weather. And so we're, uh, we're thrilled that you're here. And we're going to be working on streaming video to make it stronger and stronger as we uh, just continue down the road in our, what God has given our church to do. And we're, you're seeing this now from brand new cameras. And we're so thrilled that uh, you've joined us in your living room, wherever you might be. Turn to the person next to you and say, welcome to church. Thank you. That was good. Amen. All right. We're going to be in, we're going to finish Philippians chapter one tonight. And how many of you read ahead? Anybody read ahead? Okay. Well, next week, if I were you, I would read Philippians two. If it, it gives you a great, great reading anyway, but try reading Philippians two for next week. But right now, We're going to read Philippians 1. We're going to start at verse 11. But last time we closed talking about the need for love combined with knowledge and discernment. Discernment is necessary for us to approve the things that are excellent, the things that are of God. If you've been saved longer than two weeks, you know that the enemy will come to you and say, this is of God and it's not. Right? Hello. Now, I know it's wet out there and rainy, but let's don't have the no nods tonight. Let's try this. If you agree with me, let's do this together. If you don't, let's do this. All right. Boy, some of you are just obstinate. You won't do any of that. You won't move to the middle. You won't do anything. We got attitude in here tonight. All right. Discernment is necessary. And if somebody were to ask me, what's one of the greatest needs in the church today? I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I believe there is a deficit of discernment in the church. I believe the church is really hurting for discernment. Uh, Things are taught that Christians should catch and say, wait a minute, that's not in the word of God. Uh, Things come at us that, that we should catch, that the enemy brings before us and says, this is of God, and it's not. We should catch it. Discernment is when you can tell the difference between right and wrong, what has been sent by God, what has not been sent by God, what is of the flesh, what is of the spirit, what is of the devil, what is of God. Discernment lets us know the truth of a thing, the value of a thing, the authenticity or not of a thing. And so if I were God and I could give anything to the church, one thing I would just drop on the church. First, I would drop love. Second, I drop discernment. Amen? Amen. 
Uh, starting in verse 11, Paul gives the results of walking in love mixed with discernment. He says in verse 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now notice, what's God's will for us? We be filled with the fruits of righteousness. Amen? Amen. Filled with the fruits of righteousness. What did Jesus say? You didn't choose me. I chose you. That you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit would remain, right? So the call of God on it, why did he choose us? He told us, I chose you out of the world that you would go and bring forth spiritual fruit. And we know what that is from Galatians. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, faith. Against such there is no law. Amen? So God wants fruit in our lives. Now, he says the fruits of righteousness. Well, what's righteousness? Righteousness refers to doing simply what is right. While the culture we live in might ask if something is expedient or if it's popular or if it'll make them feel good or if it goes in line with political correctness, the Christian must ask, is it right? Is it right? Is this that I'm about to do right? Is this that is being put before me right? Is what I'm hearing right? Is the message of the culture to me right or is it wrong? Is it the right thing to do in the eyes of God? Could Jesus amen this? Is it right? Fruits of righteousness, fruit that comes from doing the right thing. You know, God is so concerned about our decisions, isn't he? And are we making a right decision or are we going into the flesh or are we following the enemy? But righteousness is simply doing what is right. Now then in verse 12, Paul talks about how God has made even his suffering work out. Paul's suffering work out to the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you, church, I don't, the amount that Paul suffered and we're about to read about it just blows my mind what this man walked through willingly to the glory of God in obedience to Jesus Christ. Look at verse 12. I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. He's saying, all my suffering, God's worked it for the good. And what's the good? The gospel has galloped anyway. Amen? Amen. Now, he's primarily referring here to his imprisonment. The imprisonment he's in as he writes this letter, he's in prison. He is shackled. He is chained. And he's writing this. The various tribulations, however, that he'd experienced were, were voluminous. And he contends that no matter what happened to him, the gospel still went forth. He provides a blow-by-blow list of these sufferings in 2 Corinthians. And I want to read them because I, I, I'm not a... Listen, I don't lift up a man... I know I said last week, I think Paul's the greatest Christian to ever live. I believe he was. And I'm going to say again, I don't think that anybody uh, in the history of the church has suffered quite on the same level as Paul, though there's been a lot of suffering. I'm not lifting him up, but I do want to say the grace on that guy was amazing in what he was able to walk through and keep right on keeping on. All right. He says, in second, very autobiographical here in 2 Corinthians 11, I've worked harder, 
been put in jail more often, been whipped times without number, faced death again and again and again. Five different times the Jews gave me their terrible 39 lashes. Stop there. Think about that. Five times 39 is 195. 195. Now, if you, you put me up to some post and you tie me to it and you pull out a whip and you put that whip across my back five times, I'm a screaming, blubbering baby. Come on. This little Jewish man, he's just like you and me. All right? He's just like you and me. They tie him up and they took that whip across his back 39 times. 39 times. That's what Jesus got. And they didn't go 40 because if they went 40, they may kill you. It wrapped around your area here. It wrapped around and ripped into your back and into your stomach. It tore skin off. It had bones attached to it, steel. It was a ripping machine, not to mention the sting of the leather. 39 times, five different times in his life. If you had taken off his shirt and looked at his back, it would have looked like a road map of scars. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus, he said. No wonder. That's what he's talking about. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Three times beaten with rods. Once, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I was in the open sea all night and the whole next day intimating he was not in a ship. He was hanging on to something in the water. I have traveled many weary miles. We talked about how many last week? uh, 10,000 by the end of his life. 10,000 miles. No cars, no planes, no automobiles, no bicycles, no nothing. Walking or a horse. 10,000 miles miles. And I've often been in great danger from flooded rivers and from robbers and from my own people, the Jews. Those are the ones that hounded him all the time, the Jewish people, as well as from the hands of the Gentiles. They did too, but not like the Jews. I have faced grave dangers from mobs in the cities and from death in the deserts and in the stormy seas and from men who claim to be brothers in Christ, but they are not. I have lived with weariness and pain and sleepless nights. Can you imagine the joint issues he had? He couldn't go get a massage. Often I've been hungry, thirsty, have gone without food. Often I have shivered with cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Now, I'm so glad he gave that list because he's letting us know, look, look at all that I have suffered. Remember when Jesus saved him and when he called uh, Ananias to go and pray over him, he told him, Ananias said, wait a minute, Lord, you don't know about this guy as if Jesus didn't know. Are you sure about this guy? Because he's been wreaking havoc on the church and Jesus said, go to him and pray for him. I will show him what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And we just read about them. But here's Paul's victorious report. That, this is why he amazes me. After all of this, he's not playing a violin. He hasn't retired. He hasn't walked away from the ministry of Christ. He hasn't suffered burnout. 
He says, these things have resulted in the furtherance of the gospel. How so? Well, in the next two verses, he tells us how it resulted in the furtherance of the gospel. Verse 13, first we're told his chains were uniquely productive. Verse 13, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ, or meaning because of Christ, I'm in chains. I'm not a criminal. I'm not a felon. I haven't done anything worthy of these chains in a legal fashion, but because of Christ, my testimony, my preaching, I'm in these chains. And everybody in the palace guard knows it. They know I'm not a criminal. When Paul arrived in Rome as a prisoner, he was turned over to the custody of the commander of an elite Roman guard. And then they, they chained him to one of these elite guards every day. Can you imagine being chained to somebody that thinks you're terrible? Can you imagine? You talk about forced fellowship. All right? He's chained. He's chained to them. These elite guards, they don't believe in God. They don't believe in anything. They're cruel. They're mean. Many of them are barbaric. But he's chained to them lest he get away. In close quarters like this, Paul could have said, well, thank you. thanks a lot, Lord. Thanks a lot, Lord, for putting me next to this character. Because he's nothing but sandpaper to me. Did he do that? No. He decided to befriend them. And he made, the, he made the best of his situation by befriending them. And then he won many of them to Jesus by his own testimony. Believe me, the uncomfortable one was the guard. Because he got chained up to the most anointed man on the face of the earth in that day who couldn't talk about anything but Jesus. Hey, can you talk about anything else? No, no. As a matter of fact, I can't talk about anything else. I'm going to talk about Jesus. You better thank God you're chained to me because I'm going to lead you to him. You're not going to go to hell because you got chained to me. I, you're, you know, this is a God thing. And I was thinking today that probably by the end of some of these guards' lives, they were thanking God for the day that they got chained to Paul because they got saved. Now, now, tell the truth. A lesser man would have questioned God's ways, fretted over his enforced imprisonment, and maybe even become embittered. Thanks, God. You know, I serve you. I preach for you. I do all that I do for you. I've had all this suffering, and now you let me get chained up to these guys, and now I'm in prison for nothing. But he didn't do that at all. He didn't have a second of a pity party. He redeemed the time and made the most of his circumstances. Now, I look at that, and I think of how often we complain, and I'm saying we, right? Our circumstances are not even remotely comparable to what he went through. But we say, you know, thanks, God, for this person next to me at work. They're just sandpaper. Can't you give me somebody that I really like? Well, maybe God has you next to that person who's just like sandpaper because he wants you to minister to Mr. or Mrs. Sandpaper and change their life. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. The Bible says that a wide circle of people in Rome, including members of Caesar's household, were won to Christ by Paul being imprisoned in Rome. You can read about it in Philippians 4.22. We'll get there in a few weeks. Now, a second way that God used Paul's imprisonment was in the number of Christians emboldened to witness. He says in verse 14, most of the brethren in the Lord having become confident by my chains are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Listen, say this with me. Zeal begets zeal. 
Now let's go further. Lukewarmness begets lukewarmness. All right, let's try another one. Bold people embolden people. Amen? And what happened here is Paul was full of unquenchable zeal. And his zeal begot zeal. The Roman Christians, the believers, the ones, many of the ones that he led to Christ, looked at the great apostle and were inspired by his sincerity, his tireless efforts, his infectious enthusiasm. Even though he was chained up, you could not take away his joy. That's why this is Philippians, the joyous letter. You couldn't take away his joy. I mean, he drove the devil crazy. He was the devil's worst nightmare. It moved them to say, you know what, Paul? If you can keep up your joy and keep right on witnessing, even while you're in prison, we can boldly witness for Christ not in prison. Amen? So all it takes, listen, only that old song, that old Christian song, I'm dating myself here, but it only takes a spark to get a fire going. We used to sing that every week. We ought to dig that thing up and have an old golden oldies night or a golden oldies, but it only takes a spark to get a fire going. It takes one person getting good and lit to get a whole bunch of people lit. Amen? Now, if you're lit, raise your hand. Even though it was rough getting here. Come on, if you're lit, raise your hand. If you're saved, you've been lit. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Well, if you're the light of the world, you're lit. All right? So lit people light people. All right? So go light somebody this week. Bring them Sunday. Amen? All right. Now, next, Paul shoots straight with them about the motives of some of the people in ministry that were in his circles. Verse 15. He says, let me tell you the truth about some people. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and strife. What in the world? Really? What? You're going to go out there and preach Jesus out of envy and out of strife? Yes. And some also from goodwill. Now, let's break that down. Some are preaching for the right motives, Paul says, from goodwill. Thank God there's people in our world preaching Christ for the right motives. I pray I preach Christ for the right motives. I pray that I do. I hope that I do. As much as I know, I do. Some are preaching Christ for the right motives from goodwill. Now, goodwill is from the very same Greek word used in heralding the Savior's birth. The angel said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, what? Goodwill toward men. It means that this first group were preaching the gospel out of a sincere desire for the well-being of others. They're preaching Jesus so that others will be blessed. I don't preach the word to hear myself talk. I preach the word and I stick with the word because I know that, well, that's, that's what's going to bless you. I know that's what's going to bless you. If I got up here and gave you a bunch of Jeff-isms, that's not going to bless you. But if I break open the word of God, that's going to bless you. And, and so the, these goodwill preachers were doing it for the right motive. But not all preachers are motivated by such desires. Now, can I get real with you tonight? Remember, this or this. Can I? Okay. I'm going to get real with you. Notice what he says. Now, he's, he's noticing this from prison. He's discerning. Here's where discernment comes in. He said, 
Some are preaching out of envy. They were jealous of Paul. They were envious of his success and resentful of his influence. So they were envious of it. They preached out of envy. They wanted to goad him by preaching. And some were preaching out of strife. This word means factious rivalry. In other words, fleshly competition. They were competing with Paul. They wanted to get ahead of Paul in ministry. They wanted to reach more people. They wanted to be more famous. They they wanted to have a bigger name. It, It was a competitive thing. And so that's why they were preaching, factious rivalry. And preachers full of this kind of factious rivalry cannot rejoice in the success of another. There are churches that will never rejoice over the success of another church. They will never stand up and say, I'm so glad of what's happening down the road or or in another part of the country. They won't get up and brag on another church because they're so full of competition and factious rivalry. It's not in them. James wrote, for where envy and selfish ambition exist, there is confusion and every evil thing. So where there is envy, Boy, I, I, I hate it. I can't stand they're reaching more numbers or I can't stand they're bringing in more money or I can't stand they're more famous or whatever. Envy, where there is that kind of envy or selfish ambition. I want to get ahead because I want to get ahead. I'm not letting God promote me. I'm promoting me and asking God to bless my promotion of me. James said, where that's there, there's confusion. And every evil thing are happening in that kind of a spirit. Paul goes on to say that these wrong-headed preachers were attempting to add to his pain. Now, he, he discerned this. Verse 16, he says, the former preach Christ from selfish ambition. Not sincerely. They're not trying to be a blessing to people. They're supposing to add affliction to my chains. Now, how mean can you get? Here you got a guy, Paul, loves the church. I mean, he literally romances the church. I don't mean that weird. He loves the church. I mean, he's giving his life to serve the church. And, and, and he loves Christ with every atom of his being. Now he's been put in chains. He's in prison, not for being a felon, but for being a preacher of the resurrection of Christ. So what do these guys do? They say, you know, we can't stand his fame, his revelations, the power of his writing. So what we're going to do, we're going to go out there and preach Christ so that he gets goaded, so that it goads him, so that he has to sit there and go, man, they're out there, they're free, they're preaching, and here I am in these chains. They wanted to irritate Paul. They hoped that thoughts of his imprisonment compared to their freedom would gall him. Comparatively, there were the others. Verse 17, but the latter, they preach out of love knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. They know why I'm here. And they're, 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 they're helping me in preaching the gospel. And folks, it hadn't changed today. People preach out of a variety of motives. Some for money. Some for money. They want your money. Okay? They want your money. Did I say they want your money? Some are preaching to get your money. They're not accountable to anybody. Nobody uh, holds them accountable for what they do with the money that comes in. Uh, They're on TV. 
they're on radio, but not me because I have a local church and I'm very, I'm not in there because I'm not after money. I don't want your money except to help us keep the lights on. But, but they want your money and that's why they come up with all these scams and, and, and ways to get it. You, you know, it's the 21st of a certain month and they get a revelation standing there on TV. The Lord told me today, they say that it's, it's, you know, it's say January 21st. And he told me that if, if 21 people would send in $21,000, he's going to bless you for the next 21 years. You've heard that kind of thing. And people jump up and write that check. Folks, they didn't hear God. God didn't tell them that. Well, how do you know that? Because I can see that nowhere in the New Testament. Nowhere. It's nowhere there. It's nowhere there. Now, I just have a question real quick. This is free and then I'll move on. Boy, this is going to go over big on radio, let me tell you. I may get a few emails on this. But they say, if you send it into this ministry, God's going to multiply it to you. But why them? Why not say, if you'll send it to this mission that I know a lot about, they're, they're helping children and feeding children. If you'll send it to them, God will bless you for it. But no, it's always to me. And then you never know what happens to it. Can I, I'm being real. I hope I'm not offending you, but if I am, I'm sorry, but this is truth. We got to get smarter, right? If I don't see it in the New Testament, it's not for me. Now, fame. There's people that want fame. They're good with words. They're charismatic. They're good on their feet. So they can get up there and they want to be known. And they also know that with fame comes money. And they want that fame. They want to be famous. They want to be a personality. They want to be like a rock star. Or both. They want money and fame. So still others preach out of the motive to win people to Jesus Christ. And they truly bless God's people. And you got to discern between the two. Love mixed with discernment. Next, we see that his rivals had no idea who they were dealing with. They didn't know. We're trying to goad him, bug him, irritate him. But they had no idea about Paul's spiritual depth and his Christ-likeness. He was so like Jesus Christ. He responded to them with one of the greatest statements in the world. I've used it several times in my own life to keep myself free. He said, what then? Yeah, they're doing this to bug me, but what then? Everybody say, what about it? That's what he's saying, what about it? That says, what then? He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and if Jesus is preached, I rejoice and will rejoice. He said, as long as the gospel's going out, I could care less who it goes out through or that they're trying to bug me because they can't bug me. I'm going to rejoice. The gospel's going out. Hey, listen, you can't bug a dead man. And he said, I'm dead. I'm dead with Christ. I'm dead with Christ. I, I, I died with Christ. And now I live under Christ. You can go up to a corpse and try to bug it, try, stick it with a pen. I'm not meaning to be weird, but call it names. Is that corpse going to get up and say, you can't talk to me that way? No, dead things don't get offended. Oh, that's easier said than done. But, but Paul was good and dead to Jesus Christ. So um, he couldn't amen their motives, but he could rejoice that the gospel was going forth, no matter who through. And this is very, very powerful to me because he simply chose to overlook the mean spirit of jealous men and rejoice the gospel was being preached. 
And this is why I call Paul the attitude king. Now, I've called him that for years. I came up with that just for me. Because as you read Paul, one of the most amazing things about him is his attitude, his victorious attitude. He was irrepressible, unstoppable, unflappable. You could not knock him down, take him out, bug him, irritate him. He, he was zeroed in on Jesus Christ and what he had been called to do. And everything happening out here was inconsequential to him. It was the gospel that mattered most to Paul. So he focused on the preaching, not the preachers. And that gave him the victory. And you ought to try that sometime. Amen? Now, his boundless optimism continues in the next verse. He says in verse 19 of chapter 1 of Philippians, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Everybody say, I know. Now, look what he was relying on. The supply of the Spirit of God. I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit would see him through. Do you know he's going to see you through? Paul said, I know it. I know the Holy Spirit's going to see me through. I've said from the pulpit several times, and I'll say it again tonight. I've pastored 35 years, and I'm going to tell you, I'm a huge debtor to the Holy Spirit. Could never, never, never have done it 35 years without the help of the Holy Spirit. How many times has he picked me up? I can't tell you. How many times has he encouraged me? I could never, never relay it. How many times has he given me a word when I didn't have a word, strength when I didn't have strength, encouraged me when I was discouraged? How many times the Holy Spirit, the parakletos, that's the Greek word, the one called alongside us to walk with us, strengthen us, hold us, keep us, guide us, direct us, strengthen us. That precious Holy Spirit, how could we do it a day in this world without the Holy Spirit? Amen. And he said, not only is the Holy Spirit going to help me, but I know this, that Jesus Christ is going to be magnified in my life no matter what. Now, Paul had a lifelong attitude. And here's what his attitude was. Ready for either. Can we say that together? Ready for either. What do you mean? Well, that was five of you. Let's try it again. Ready for either. What does that mean? He was ready for either consequence. If they kill me, I'm ready. If they don't kill me, I'm ready. If I'm sent to heaven, I'm ready. If I'm left on earth, I'm ready. I'm ready for either. Ready for either. I believe that's the attitude every believer should adopt. I'm ready for either. There's certain nations we could live in tonight that kill Christians on a regular basis. And and they would need to have this. I'm ready for either. Today, I'm going to get up and walk with Jesus. But if somebody comes and kills me for it, I'm ready for either. I'm ready for heaven or I'm ready to remain. Whatever God decrees, I'm ready for either. Can can we say ready for either? Amen. Come on. Then he spills the secret to his inner victory with one of the most familiar Pauline verses in the Bible. Let's read it together. Are you ready? Verse 20, for to me, to live is Christ 
and to die is gain. There is somebody dead to himself and alive to God. Now, let me talk to you for a minute. Everybody on the earth, including everybody here and everybody watching by streaming video, we all live for something or we live for someone, all of us, everybody. We're living for something or someone. If people were honest, if you just went to the streets of Fort Worth and asked, what are you living for? If they were honest, some would say, well, truthfully, for me to live is pleasure or for me to live is wealth. Or for me to live is prestige and power. But for Paul, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. He's the reason I get up in the morning. He's the reason I live the way I live. He's the reason I go to bed at night. He's the reason I'm on earth. He's the reason. Not pleasure, not money, not fame, not prestige. Jesus. Amen. I've given this illustration a couple of times on Sundays, but it's good for right here. Uh, Life, the life God's given every one of us, it's like somebody gave you a dollar. If I just handed you a dollar tonight, and I gave you that dollar, I said it's your dollar, and you walked away with it. Now, here's what you can do with that dollar. You can spend it any way you want. It's your dollar. You can go spend it any way you want, but you can only spend it once. And once it's spent, it's gone. God gave you and me a life. And you know what God said? You can spend it any way you want. But you can only spend it once. You're not coming back as anything else. There's no reincarnationism. It's given unto a man to die once. And after that, the judgment. So life is a gift. Every day that we wake up, we have been gifted a day. And we can spend it any way we want. But you can only spend it once. You can never spend yesterday again. Yesterday's spent. What'd you spend it on? What'd I spend it on? Right? Every day is a gift and you can only spend it once. Today was a gift. You've spent it. You made it to church on a really stormy night. You, you spent it to hear the word of God. And that was a good spend. But every day is a gift and your whole life is a gift. And let me tell you how fast it goes. Just like that. I used to be able to snap better. Like that. It goes like that. You're 30 and you wake up and you're 50 and say, what in the world? Where did it go? And then you wake up and you're 60 and you go, I can't remember as good as I could when I was 50. But I tell you this, it goes fast. And then 70 and 80 and and no wonder the Bible says, what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. James. So your life is fast. And, and, but the gift is you can spend it any way you want. Paul said, I'm spending it on Christ. To live for anything other than Jesus Christ is to reach the end of your life, I assure you, with regrets. I have been at a lot of bedsides of a lot of terminal people as a pastor of 35 years. I've been to a lot of bedsides when there wasn't much time left. Let me tell you what I've never heard. Never has anyone ever said to me, I sure wish I hadn't spent so much time serving Jesus. Never. But here's what I have heard. I wish I'd gotten saved sooner. I wish I'd gotten serious about God sooner in my life. I wish I hadn't waited till my twilight years 
to really get involved in church and, and really plug in. So the regrets are always, I didn't serve him enough. I wish I'd served him more. The famous English poet, Lord Byron, some of you recognize that name. He's from the Romantic period in history. You, you had three major Romantic poets from the Romantic period. Um, Byron, Sheets, and, uh, or Yeats and Shelley. Byron, Yeats, and Shelley. And Byron was a party animal. He was handsome, he was charismatic, and he lived fast and hard. He wrote at the ripe age of 30 these words. I've squandered my whole summer while t'was May. I've spent my life, both interest and principle, by 30. In other words, I've lived hard and fast. For the pleasures of this world, through caution to the wind, so that the summertime of my life was consumed before I even got there. In the month of May, I spent my life before June even arrived. Six years later, and he died in his 30s, I do believe. He died very young. But when he was 36, he wrote again, my days are in the yellow leaf. The flowers and fruits of love are gone. 36. The flowers and fruits of love are gone. The worm, the canker, and the grief are mine alone. That's from a 36-year-old who lived for himself and for pleasure and not for God. But the Christian that serves Jesus Christ his whole life will never reach the end of life like that. Paul said, if I live, I live serving Jesus. If I die, I go to Jesus, which is gain. I can't lose. Can we give him a hand of praise tonight? Amen. You know, you'll recall that Paul went to heaven one day. The Holy Spirit took him there. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 to 5, if you want to read about it, he describes hearing unspeakable words that he was never allowed to repeat on earth. He called the place he went to paradise. No wonder he longed to return. And that's why he was presented with a conflict that he describes to us in 22 through 24 of chapter one of Philippians. He says, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm torn. I'm hard pressed between the two choices, staying on earth to minister to you or going to heaven and being with Jesus. I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better than sticking around on earth. He's torn. If I stick around, I'm going to have more fruit from my ministry. But oh, to go be with Jesus is so much better. In the end, Paul shows love because he was like Christ. He says, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for all your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Here's what he's saying essentially. You need me more than I want to go to heaven. Can you see here, does that sound egotistical to you? Does that sound arrogant to you that he says, look, I, am, I have such quality ministry, I'm so valuable regarding your producing of fruit, spiritual fruit, that it's better for me to stick around for your sake. Is that arrogance? No. You know what it is? It's true. If it's true, it's not arrogance. 
He said, I know it's true. And so since I walk in love and not selfishness, I'm going to stick around. Commentator John Phillips writes, Paul reluctantly turned his thoughts from the land of harps and halos to a world of grime and guilt. Well put. Now, Paul, ever concerned about the well-being of others, starts giving them advice. And now we're in our final few verses. Verse 27, he says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So notice, he's saying, I want you to have unity and I want you to walk your talk. Now, we're going to see that one of the things he does in the beginning of chapter 2, he corrects two women who are at odds with each other in the church. And he's going to name them. And he's going to tell them to get it together. And then he's going to launch into the rest of chapter 2. So he's hinting at it here. He's saying, I want you to walk in unity. Walk in love. Quit fighting. Quit squabbling. Don't be carnal. Now, the word conduct, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's from a word meaning citizenship or manner of life. In this verse, it can mean literally citizen life. So we could put it this way. Only let your citizen life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, what does that mean? He's telling us you have a dual citizenship. You're citizens of this world. You and I, most of us in here, I'm... I don't know. I think probably all of us are citizens of America, all right? Legal citizens of America, all right? But we're also citizens of heaven. Our citizenship in another place, Paul said, our citizenship is in heaven. It's in heaven. We are citizens in heaven. Amen? We're citizens of heaven. That's our home. Now, what he's saying is, let your heaven citizenship show in the way you live on earth. That's what he's saying. Let your heavenly citizenship show the way you live on earth. Walk your talk. Walk in unity. If you say you're a believer, not talking about perfection. You don't have to be perfect, but sincere. Be a sincere, real Christian. Be authentic. Don't be phony and fake. Churches are full of phony and fake Christians. People that say, I'm a Christian, but you look at the way they live, you say, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. If you're out there shacking up with somebody and then you're coming to church raising your hands, you need to read your Bible closer. If you're out there getting drunk at weekends or drunk anytime and coming to church and raising your hands, you need to read your Bible closer. All right? Let your citizenship life, your citizenship in heaven, show in your citizenship on earth. Amen. Amen, Pastor Jeff. That's good stuff. I agree with that. And he says, while I'm at it, I want you to be courageous and unafraid of your enemies. Listen to this. Not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of their perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. I used to read that verse and go, what is that? But here's what he's saying. When you are calm and collective, courageous in the face of danger and persecution, It is a token to your enemies that they are headed for hell. Because when they see your calmness in the face of danger, they go, "Uh uh-oh, 
what they're telling me that Jesus Christ changed them is real. And if I don't get saved, I'm going to go to hell, the hell they avoided by turning to Christ. Courageous. I've read many times, I think every believer ought to try to wade through the Fox's Book of Martyrs at least once. Because I read so many times in Fox's Book of Martyrs where saints were, for instance, being burned at the stake. And they would sing and they would praise God. And their lack of fear in the face of death brought bystanders under conviction and brought them into salvation. Paul reminds them of the certainty of suffering for Christ. Now we're about to end on a high note. You're going to suffer for Jesus. All right? Verse 29, for to you, everybody turn to your neighbor and say, that's you. For to you, it's been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. Paul assured Timothy of the very same thing. In fact, everybody who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. See, you know you're doing the right thing. You're walking the way you ought to if, if you catch some flack every once in a while for your Christian faith. If nobody's gotten on to you for the last few years for your Christian faith, I wonder how open it is out there in the public. Because these days you can't come out for Jesus without people jumping on you and criticizing you, mocking you, ostracizing you. Right now there's other parts of the world where you'll give your life for Christ. Did you know the 20th century produced more martyrs than all the centuries leading up to the 20th century. And you know that the level of martyrdom now in the 21st century is at a top fever pitch. Most of the martyrs for Jesus Christ are being killed by Muslims. That's a fact in different parts of the world. But they're giving their life. We in America, we suffer criticism, ostracism, persecution. But in Saudi Arabia, in the Middle East, in the Far East, people are giving their lives every day. They're saying, I will not recant. And they're being killed. They're being sent home. They're not giving up. I've never suffered physical violence for my faith. But I have experienced mockery and ostracism and criticism. And you know what? It's okay. Because Peter wrote, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. Can we read that together? If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. And you say, well, I don't feel very blessed. Well, I haven't either when it happened to me. But the truth is, you're blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God is resting on you. Praise God. And then to close out. Paul points to his own suffering as an example. He says in verse 30, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. On one level or another, you may be called on to suffer as I have, says Paul. And church, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. But I can tell you from when I read the word of God and I do study the word of God, I can tell you our culture is getting darker and darker. And uh, there is a greater level of persecution happening in the United States of America than I, I've been preaching since the 70s. I've never seen persecution like now. People are losing their jobs. People are being ostracized. People are being criticized. People are losing their careers. People are being fired. People are being uh, divorced. People are being forsaken by loved ones because of their identification with Jesus Christ on a level I've never seen. So all of us need to have the attitude, 
ready for either. Amen. Ready for either. Can we stand? Amen. Let's thank the Lord for his goodness, his blessing. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We thank you, Lord, for this powerful word from Paul. We're so excited, Lord, about even next week and what he's going to share, the the most profound statement of the condescension of Jesus Christ ever written. And we're going to look at it next week, Lord. We're excited. But Lord, tonight we ask you to help us to be strong. Help us to walk with you. Help us, Lord, to be shining lights in this dark world. Help us to be authentic. Help us to be real. Help us to be true to our confession. And I thank you, Lord, for growing up in Turning Point Church starting with me, a a multitude of people who have grown into spiritual maturity, who have grown into the fullness of the stature of Christ, who are making a difference for Jesus in our world, in our orbit, amongst those that you have placed us around. In Jesus' name, let's sing a chorus of praise.